0: I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Welcoming back from a few weeks hiatus, our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And joining us for the first time in a while and far too long, our TV critic, Sonia Soraya. Hey, what's up? Hey, thank you for jumping in, Sonia. It's been Emmy season for months and months and months, and yet we keep getting distracted by, you know, other things going on in the world. Um, but it felt like finally time to buckle down and talk about the Emmys. The nominations are going on right now as you hear this. They'll be announced at the end of July. Um, but we wanted to get into some of our um, our personal FYC picks and what we hope you, if you are an Emmy voter with a ballot listening to this, what you might want to consider. But first, there's pressing news, uh, maybe less pressing as you listen to this, but because it's going to be on Disney Plus forever. Uh, but Hamilton is on Disney Plus. We talked a little bit about it last week. But Sonia, you wrote the review for VanityFair.com. And um, I wanted just to let you, um, I, I assume, sing the praises of Hamilton. But you tell me where you landed on the, on the um, Disney Plus version. I, I can't help it. I can't help it. I'm so in the bag. You know,
3: (laughs) the funny thing is, is that like Hamilton has been this phenomenon for like five years now. So it doesn't feel like it's not new. And I'm not like, it's not that I'm like listening to this for the first time, but it was really nice to see it staged. I mean, when I saw it staged, like in real life, my seats were very far back, you know? (laughs) So it's nice to get the close-ups, and the choreography so good. And they, you know, they do a lot with it. So the film itself, it's not super fancy camera work. They're really just showing you what the stage production was like. But it's really nice to see the ensemble and to get a sense of, like, who all the different characters are and uh, see, you know, Aaron Burr's face during wait for it that was like a highlight for me um it's
0: just a great it's a great show I cried at the end again you know whatever (laughs) I told you before we were recording like I listen to the soundtrack frequently enough and I think about the ending and having seen it in real life and I start to cry so please (laughs) no no judgments whatsoever here I really appreciate it
2: did it feel like a time machine to the Obama administration
3: a little bit yeah They filmed it in June 2016. It took me back to the election. And um, you know, something interesting, I saw it on stage after the election and during the film production, Everyone claps when they say, uh, well, first when they say immigrants, we get the job done. And then also, like, we're going to include women in the sequel. And there's, like, Mm -hmm. a lot of enthusiastic applause from the audience. And then when I saw it in 2017, like, nobody clapped at that line. Everyone was over it. Like, just that the election had, like, drained people's energy for... You know, including women in the sequel, um, it was it, it was really interesting because a friend of mine who'd seen it before brought it up. She was like, "It was weird. Everyone was very quiet during that moment." But it was really night. Nice. It, it weirdly felt more relevant after this summer of protest and uh, awareness and talking so much about you know the underpinnings of America. You know, the show talks about slavery a few times, and a lot of these characters are playing slave owners. A lot of these characters of color are playing slave owners. So it sort of felt like it was super relevant, and then felt less relevant, you know, as is the first depressing years of the Trump era. And then now it felt like, oh, this like upswing of optimism again, and like July 4th, of course, is like the perfect time to watch something like this. So yeah, yeah, it lives on, you know?
0: That was the thought I had, too, is like watching these, like, you know, men of color singing in the beginning of of the musical, like, rise up when you're living on your knees, rise up. I was like, God, this it feels like the story is like coming back all over again. Like, let's tear down the Confederate monuments and replace them with like David Diggs as Thomas Jefferson (laughs) and maybe (laughs) rewrite history that way. Feeling fine about it. Uh, Okay, let's talk about the Emmys. We have over the past few months, if you've been listening, you have heard us talking to all kinds of Emmy contenders. I did. I rounded it up uh, recently for a show, the little Goldman newsletter. And it was really just fun to look at how many people we've talked to. Um, And I think we all have our, you know, personal horses that we're rooting for. I think predicting the Emmy nominees is not as interesting as it is to talk about, uh, you know, who we're in the bag for. Um, And I maybe just wanted to go category by category, at least for the top few of them. Um, What do you guys want to start with, comedy or drama? Everybody pick. Comedy.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think for comedy, um, something I would hope that will do well seems to be polling well or whatever. I mean, we all know that those polls are (laughs) often wrong. But I think, you know, Schitt's Creek ended its run uh, earlier this year. And although I didn't love the last season, I think that the show getting recognized for its body of work. I mean, it got some nominations last year, which was a big deal. But I think they could actually win a few categories. And I think Best Comedy might be one of them.
3: Certainly it would be a more exciting win than The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Um, which like it's just you know, it's been such a reliable awards force. Um, but I, I don't know that the third, you know, I don't know if that its third season was like necessarily its best moment or whatever.
0: Well, and it got, um, you know, everything got kind of swept by Fleabag last year. It, it feels like easy to forget that we were coming off of such a thrilling Emmys where like everyone was like, oh, Fleabag, the charming underdog. We'll see how it does. And it just like ran the table. Um, yeah. So maybe especially in comedy, like maybe that's Shit's Creek or maybe it's some, some other kind of underdog Um like dead to me, maybe like who know, like something else could pop up and surprise us.
2: It, it won't be an underdog in the in the world where people look at Gold Derby because it's leading most, if not all, of those categories. Which is so funny because the best seasons of Schitt's Creek happen in a complete vacuum on whatever pop TV is, like you know, playing <laughs> in like gas stations in Canada, <laughs> and then and then all of a sudden everybody discovered it on Netflix, and and now it's like the world's most beloved show. But it obviously has a big advantage in the fact that it's ending, right? Yeah. Um, like yeah. they just announced that Curb Your Enthusiasm's coming back, which to me is really great. I love Curb Your Enthusiasm. And I would love to see, you know, J.B. Smoove get in there for a supporting nomination or whatever. But, you know, the fact that it's coming back gives you the license to say, all right, well, we'll come back to it then. You know, we don't have to do anything right now.
0: Mike, you always point out that um, Schitt's Creek was uh, was beloved by the Canadian uh, former editor in chief of Vanity Fair, Graydon Carter, and there was we ran a piece on them in December 2016, and and we were all kind of like, who? What is this? (laughs) Like, we all love Eugene Levy, but what is this? What is going on? And the portrait of the cast is so fantastic, like it's a classic Vanity Fair spread of these people who we now know and love. So at least uh, some of us got credit for being uh, early.
2: What what would really make me happy is if Chris Elliott would get a um, supporting nomination, because when I first watched it, I basically was thinking oh, there's a Chris Elliott show.
3: Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
2: and I loved him so much in it that I finally, my brother sent me years ago, mailed me uh, a DVD of Cabin Boy. And I finally put it in and watched half of it, which is, I feel like an <laughs> accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> but Chris Elliott is like, he's the deranged. To me, like his deranged comedy is is the best of Schitt's Creek. And then I, I personally find it a little corny when it goes super earnest, but it's it's fine.
3: Right. Without him, it would be way too corny. Like it would be too, like it would just be such a sweet like show. And he brings this element of like, actually, people are terrible to like right. every interaction. <laughs> yeah. Um, a possible dark horse, if enough people watch it, I just want to shout it out, is the latest season of Insecure, um, mm-hmm. which I feel like has been so much buzzier and so much much discussed in a way that the first season of Insecure really was. They did a lot this season with the friendship between um, Issa and Molly, and um, they also did a lot with like her maybe getting back together with her ex, uh, Lawrence. I just think the way that people have been talking about it and the way that it uh, is beloved by the people who are watching it means that it could, at the very least, you know, a nomination for Issa again um, and get maybe some more traction there. But with all of these, it always seems like the ones that are on streaming platforms seem to do best, I think, just because more Emmy voters watch them when they're online. That's it. Mm.
0: Oh, as as opposed to HBO, like you think it has a disadvantage there? I mean, I don't
3: think that like, of course, I'm sure they all subscribe to HBO. But I think like just the fact they come out weekly, like, you know, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Dead to Me, uh, Schitt's Creek, you just well, I guess Schitt's Creek came out weekly. So maybe I'm thinking just Maisel and Dead to Me. They like they just all come like in a batch and you watch them all. And I think that really helps voters just like Hmm. get it into their system. Yeah.
4: Yeah. To that end, I could see another spoiler potentially being Rami. Which is a Hulu show, and Rama Youssef, who's the creator and star, he won Best Actor at the Golden Globes back in January. Remember? Doesn't that feel like that was 10 years ago? It was actually just a few months ago. <laughs> yeah, it's
5: crazy that
0: that was this year.
4: But I feel like, you know, I think the, an interesting thing about the reality that we find ourselves in, and, and, and you know, kind of um, adding to what you just said, Sonia, about like the likelihood of a voter, of an average voter watching something is like, a lot of people have been stuck in their mansions for you know, months now. <laughs> and I just wonder how that affects what they've watched. Maybe they've sought stuff out that they wouldn't normally. I mean, maybe we'll see an Emmys year that breaks the, you know, finally really breaks the tradition um, that we've all grumbled about for a long time, that like they just keep repeating the same old stuff for year after year. I don't know. Maybe this is the year that they actually dug a little deeper and looked a little wider and, and found some smaller things that really um, they wouldn't have otherwise.
0: I'm looking at y'all's list of the best television of the year so far, and there's not a ton of comedies on here, which, you know, I I guess there's a wide range of everything. Um, Is High Fidelity a comedy, and does it stand a chance? Is it a comedy?
4: I think it's a comedy. I mean, it's a half an hour. And I think that its best chance would be a nomination for Zoe Kravitz in the lead role, um, because she's really good, and I feel like you know, she's been around for a long time. She's worked with a lot of people. Um, She seems to have enough goodwill in the industry to work a lot. So, um, and, and, you know, she's very much the center of that show. So um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see her in the mix.
0: I had a similar question about The Great. I assume The Great is a drama. It seems to skew a little, even though it's very funny, it seems to skew more drama.
3: But it's in this comedy poll um, on Gold Derby, which I know is not perfect, but that's actually surprised me too.
0: Because The Great seems like something that, like, like maybe is the actual underdog. If Shit's Creek isn't like something that, like, it got rave reviews. It's got these two incredibly charming stars. Um, it's got these elaborate production values. So it could get like t- you know twelve below the line nominations. Um, so like maybe that's something that that will pop up on us. Mike, what besides career enthusiasm are you rooting for? I guess in any category, I would
2: love to see The Great show up. It is. It's funny to me that it's not showing up in more, uh, in more people's lists. You know, I thought. Obviously um Elle Fanning and and Nicholas Holt is incredible in it. I mean it's mm-hmm. an, it's super dark but Nicholas he's amazing. Nicholas
0: Goldman guest.
2: Yeah. So I mean that would make me really happy. What is the uh the good place it feels like the good place has gone from a a heavy hitter to like maybe more of an underdog now? Is that the situation? It's from the before time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It, it like Rami's Golden Globe victory, ended, you know, it ended in February or whatever, uh, a.k.a. two years ago. It is really hard to kind of wrap your head around all that. Yeah. I mean, I, I would have loved to see what The Good Place would have done with
3: humans not wearing masks and pandemic uh, morality. <laughs> and it's it just missed the window. You know, it it, it just wasn't it was about the, the pre the, the before times. But I, I mean I'm I'm hoping for a nomination for Ted Danson at the very least, but it does feel like it's fallen off the conversation a little bit.
2: Yeah.
4: Speaking of like um if I can shift to drama for a second, like mm-hmm. I think that one of the front runners is Succession and yet that season premiered in August of last year and i'm just and sometimes that doesn't matter for the emmys but i'm just wondering in given everything that's happened since if that's even going to be on people's radar in the way that like people on gold derby are assuming it's the front runner but like maybe it's not just because time has been a very strange entity uh, of late
0: is there something that you think would would kind of swoop in and take its momentum in that drama? Like the, my the only news, u- Katie. <laughs> <laughs> so you are saying the morning show is really gonna gonna Well,
2: stop up. yeah, maybe. <laughs> you know what really feels like like from another world entirely is the Crown. I had to kind of mm-hmm. remind myself that the Crown even happened uh, yeah. in the in this time period, and it, and it was good. Um, you know, I guess Better's Call Saul was more recent. Um, and i don't know there is something weird and paranoid about better call saul that does seem to fit our time yeah <laughs> I absolutely <don't>
3: know why. <laughs> you know the thing with succession is that i've been seeing people talking about rewatching it and i imagine that it holds up well in our sort of like moment of acute wealth disparity and like new great depression that I can see like some of the comedies that we were talking about, and certainly The Crown, like, don't quite feel as relevant. So I wonder. It really goes back to Richard, what you were saying about. I wonder what people are viewing right now, like what their viewing habits are and what's attracting them, because I feel like that could really change the average spread. Um, like, imagine The Handmaid's Tale being something you were drawn to, like, right now. And it's or, eligible,
0: isn't it? Like, I think it's, it is. Um, yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. And it feels like, I'm sure that for some people, it feels like totally outdated. And then for some people, the fact that it's got this dystopian thing going on um, will feel very resonant. So uh, it's it's such a crapshoot with all of these, uh, with all of the serious shows about like what chords it's going
0: to hit. I do think the eat the rich attitude of succession, like, is something that I would, you know, relish going back into. Like, it's the attention span thing. Although succession, you know, you think about, like, Westworld where you like have to really focus on it and everyone's having such a hard time, like, touching their brain cells together right now. But succession might be just uncomplicated enough to, to work for pandemic <laughs> right. times. Like, right. I wouldn't mind, like, watching and hating all the Roys on their yacht right now. Um, it, it doesn't seem like it's gone out of style. Oh, and that's that's also topical, isn't it? The yacht, yacht drama (laughs) billionaires on a yacht. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Richard, I know you're a fan of Ozark. Uh, Does it like it aired pretty recently, like since the pandemic started? Do you do you feel like that gives it an edge?
4: Maybe. Yeah. It's also back in the news because they just announced that next season will be expanded, but also will be its last season. So I don't know, maybe it's going to be more top of mind for people. Um, It seems like Laura Linney, um, who, you know, who who didn't get nominated for the first season, though Jason Bateman did. That's crazy. um, But she had a really good season this year. Like the show almost kind of shifted to be about her. Uh, in some ways, and so I could see, like, her having that momentum. Ozark is one of those shows, and I don't mean this in any derogatory way, because I'm speaking of my own family, but, like, it's a real, like, you know, boomers are watching it, your parents are watching it kind of thing, which, you know, might mean that it doesn't always get the attention, like, in the Twitter sphere or whatever that um, some of us are plugged into, but look at the makeup of the Academy, or the sort of, you know, what we know of it, like, I, I think that that's a show that probably resonates really well with a lot of members, so... That seems like I feel like that's stronger going to be stronger in um, like performances or or directing or writing. I mean, Bateman has already won an Emmy for directing um, that show. Then it will be like competing against Succession for best drama. I I think that that would be a a really tough uh, road for them to haul if they if they're trying for that.
3: What about Westworld? Do we think that Westworld is significant in the way it has been in the past? I think it
0: had I think it had a rough go of it this season. Um, I think like some of the the acting talent that is on there can continue to stand out in a lot of ways. Like I think Evan Rachel Wood and Tandy Newton both had pretty good seasons. And, you know, depending on what the competition looks like in that category, like you can imagine them making room for it. But they, you know, they changed it up so dramatically this past season. um, It might make it easy for people to be like, oh, that show we've moved on.
4: What's the uh, sports term? A rebuilding season? A rebuilding, <laughs> rebuilding year. <laughs> yeah, yes. um, That felt like, yeah. what West, I mean, Westworld, you know, they have a, a few more seasons kind of planned, I think. And this was their big transitional one. And I think it had a lot of kinks that didn't get quite ironed out. But it is a show, if we're thinking in industry terms, that employs a lot of people. It spends a lot of money. You know, it shot, uh, well, I think some of it at least shot in L.A., uh, this this past season. So like it probably has some like industry support in that way. But I think this season, it, I would be surprised to see it get much play um, at the Emmys.
0: Um, I want to ask you guys about limited series, because as with many years, it seems like when you're like, oh, what's the best thing I saw on television last year? Like a lot of it shows up in this category again. Uh, and to me, it feels like Watchmen, Mrs. America and uh, like Unbelievable and The Plot Against America make up a pretty stellar lineup. Is it just like watching our faves somehow beat each other in these categories?
3: It's hard to imagine anything beating Watchmen. I think that the talking just about like the way that relevance changes the way we see things. Watchmen's uncanny kind of prediction of what we were gonna be thinking about uh, the summer of 2020 makes me think that it's just um, unbeatable. I also constantly forget it's a limited series. I'm like, oh, it's a drama. It's gonna win the drama category. And then, oh yeah, no, it's not. But to your point, I mean, there are so many uh, miniseries that were really beloved normal people which wasn't necessarily my favorite but is a favorite is also in this category unorthodox which is the um the shira haas shira haas starring as a an orthodox jew leaving the community um was also like very well liked i think um
2: i I loved unbelievable um although it was some episodes were better than others but once you had had merit weaver And Tony Collette on screen which took a longer than I would have liked but that that show was really good they were so good I hope I hope that it does get in there
3: I similarly loved that show and it aired so long ago yeah Um, it was like last summer right that's like one of the that's like one of those things um I wonder if it's still going to be in people's minds
2: yeah it feels like a Watchmen, you know, it, 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 I think you're totally right that just the time's caught up with it in such an incredibly powerful way. It's hard to imagine it not really, like, coming all the way through.
4: Yeah, and this sounds really cynical, but, like, with all of the um, protests recently and the launch of HBO Max bizarrely happening around the same time... HBO was able to be like, hey, look, put it on our front page. Watch Watchmen, you know. and, and Yeah, spend
0: Juneteenth watch, weekend watching it for free.
4: Yeah, I mean, it feels a bit opportunistic, sure, but, like, that might work. I would, you know, I would like to uh, stump for The Plot Against America, which, you know, is certainly going to be in the mix. I don't think it'll get overlooked. Um, but that premiered, you know, at really the beginning of the height of the COVID Era, And I think it got a bit lost in the shuffle, you know, kind of speaking to like, who wants to watch what, you know, in these times, like, I don't know if that paranoid show, uh, you know, about an alternate history where Charles Lindbergh becomes president and is a Nazi sympathizer. And, you know, uh, I don't know if that's something a mood that people were after in March. But it's really great. And it's really, you know, we had Zoe Kazan on this show talking about it. Um, She's one of the the standout performers in that show. But everyone is great. Winona Ryder, John Turturro.
3: Oh uh, No, I completely agree. It's so fantastic. And but what it makes me think of immediately is like the David Simon curse at the awards, um, <laughs> which like, it, it seems. It, which is a real thing. It's a real thing. We seem to, we seem to laud his work mostly in hindsight. And I'm looking at Show Me a Hero, which was his uh, mini series that he did. And Oscar Isaac won the Golden Globe for that. And I think that might be the only like major award that that show won. And that was also amazing, yeah. It was fantastic. It was fantastic. Just as this is fantastic. Um, So I I I don't know how to parse that. Like, I don't know exactly what's happening. Because at this point, it sort of seems like we all agree. David Simon makes great TV. Um, And, of course, he made this one with Ed Burns as well. But... um, it has been surprising how muted the discussion is about it.
0: Yeah. I, I love the plot against America so much. I think in, like of, like, things that I, my viewing has been a lot more limited than yours, but it feels like the best thing that I've seen all year. Um, I would be really frustrated if Zoe Kazan didn't make it through there in particular because, Richard, after you, like, did your interview, I think a few weeks later, I finally finished it, and she has this scene in the final episode, and, like, she talked to you about, like, how being a new mom, like, really filled her in on playing this character, and it's, oh, it was, like, one of the most devastating things I've, I've watched. So I was thinking about Watchmen and, like, how Regina King feels like— because Regina King has won multiple Emmys already. Like, she is, like, as a, as a award stalwart as you could get. Like, she seems like such an obvious place for award Watchmen. But on that show or anything else, are there particular performers who you want to make sure aren't overlooked or maybe you're especially excited to see them run through their categories? I mean, I
3: loved Gene Smart so much in that <laughs> in that series. Um, I also really liked Tim Blake Nelson, Um I think they both were. Uh, I think they both did great stuff. And Jeremy Irons seems like kind of a shoe in for a, a nomination somewhere, um, just because he's so well known. But now we're talking about like limited supporting. I don't know if. Uh it's like it's sort of like the, the penny seats of the <laughs> of the Emmy race. Yeah, but then
0: you look at who's in there. Like I'm looking at the limited supporting actor Gold Derby thing right now. It's like Tim Blake Nelson, Jim Parsons, John Taturo, Joe Mantello, John Slattery, like you get some major talent in these categories.
4: Yeah, for sure, yeah. The big one I'm hoping to see um, is Hugh Jackman for Bad Education, mm-hmm. the movie that HBO bought from Toronto uh, last year that aired in May, and it was so, so good. And I think it would have been an Oscar play for him had it been released theatrically, But um, this, so this is his, like, awards chance for that. He's really great in it. Alison Janney's great in it. Um, Annalie Ashford's really good in it. Like it's So I hope that that movie, which I think got some acclaim, but, you know, again, arrived at a weird time, and it was a, aired on a Saturday night, and I, I don't know that anybody was really, like, Making it appointment viewing, but yeah, I would I think it'd also be fun. I don't know what form the Emmys are going to take exactly this year, but like it would be fun to watch Hugh Jackman give an acceptance speech. I think I think that might you know make people who are you know, waiting for the
2: music man on Broadway kind of it'll hold them over.
3: (laughs) He needs to burst into song.
2: (laughs) I just watched that, Richard, on your and Cam's recommendation from your um, piece on the best movies of the year so far. It is so good. And I also want to mention Geraldine Viswanathan, who uh, plays the young journalist at the school newspaper, um, who's so good. You'll recognize her from Blocker's. And uh, I think she's just a terrific actress in everything that I've seen her in. But yeah, that 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 is a really good film, TV film, I guess.
4: Yeah, and it's a, it it's you know it was an acquisition. It wasn't you know something that HBO developed. But I think it's a nice throwback to something that's becoming a little bit of a lost art, which is the made for TV movie versus the limited series. And you know I, again, it wasn't made as such. Uh, it was supposed to be a theatrical release, but. You know, I think it would be nice if they honored that half of that category, which kind of I think has been overlooked in in recent years.
0: Yeah, you look at the contenders in TV movie and it's, you know, Bad Education and the Breaking Bad movie. But then like this filmed Broadway version of American Son, which I guess that's the the category Hamilton will qualify in next year. It's a strange category. Bring back the TV movie. Um, Any final FYCs you guys want to give out to uh, anyone listening who might be lucky enough to have an Emmy ballot?
2: You know, I, I, I saw a few people um, put Euphoria on their lists, but I think it would be cool if Zendaya would, got a nomination. Um, I was with my niece in uh, Mississippi last weekend watching multiple uh, previous Zendaya performances on Disney Plus <laughs> movies. I'm thinking to myself, Euphoria, man, probably. she's got range. Zendaya <laughs> has range.
3: She's great, and I think she's really great in Euphoria. I I think Euphoria is a better show than it got credit for, like all together. But
0: I finally caught up with it
4: during during quarantine because I had sort of watched the pilot, and I was like, "This is too much for me. I'm too old. I don't. This is sensory overload." (laughs) That's Um, how I felt. But um, but then I finally, I think I was ready for a little sensory overload, um, and I I think it's great. I think the one hindrance, and I I agree that she is great on that show, but I think the one hindrance for Zendaya getting awards attention beyond, I think some voters overlooking it as a teen show or whatever is that she's kind of the passive observer in a lot of ways in a lot of those episodes whereas some other characters are doing because a lot of the time she's kind of zonked out um where the other characters get to do the bigger more dynamic plot stuff um so i wonder if that might be a hindrance but or frankly if academy voters will even think that deeply about it i don't know
2: well yeah to your boomer vibes um point about uh, you know emmy voters it's possible that they will just not really get into it but yeah it's 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 i'm interested to see what she does next if nothing else
3: it is true that watching euphoria hunter schaefer really popped for me um because she has so much to do in that in that season and there's so much going on with her character um a really tremendous performer
4: i thought yeah and the guy who plays the horrible athlete is, is Jacob Elordi, oh, I think his name yeah, is? Oh, yeah,
3: yes, it is Jacob Elordi. Yeah. He's,
4: that's an incredible performance, um, mm. even though, you know, he's not, uh, he's playing, you know, a, a monster, essentially. But, like, I think it's a really smart um, depiction of that kind of thing. And, again, it's, it just pops a little more than Zendaya, who beautifully holds the show together. But, I don't know, it's not as showy. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Richard, we should talk about Mrs. America, which you and Joanna spent an entire wonderful podcast season talking about. Um, it obviously has a ton of places to contend, but also Kate Blanchett will screw up against Regina King. Um, you know, it's kind of a dream matchup where you want them all to win. Um, anything else from Mrs. America you want to stump for?
4: Do you know that Simpsons episode where Mr. Burns goes to the doctor and the doctor is like, well, you have all diseases and they're all... <laughs> Because you have them all, like they can't. It's like he has like little stuffed dolls and he's trying to stuff them all through a door frame. And he's like, you know, I just kind of feel like Mrs. America is that it's like there's so much talent in that show that I'm worried that like none of them will break through and actually win anything. <laughs> I mean, um, limited
3: supporting actress is going to be real crowded. Like, yeah. Yeah. it's. I think yeah. they have five, five, five contenders in just like, that Cape,
0: category. Kate Lynch is the lead and everyone else is supporting. Is yeah, that the, I mean, uh, if, is that the idea?
4: Exactly. And I, I would pick, pick Uzo Aduba in that because her episode, you know, where she plays Shirley Chisholm is so moving and actually, I think, really perhaps gestures most clearly toward the current moment in terms of the lack of intersectional um, politics within uh, the women's rights movement. But, but, and you know, she's also an Emmy favorite. I think she's what the only, one of the few people who to win a performance for the same role in a comedy and drama because the Orange is do Black kept shifting. Oh, uh, yeah. oh right, of yeah. course, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know, she's like an Emmy's darling. So we'll see, maybe that yeah. could happen again for her.
3: I mean, in terms of Kate Blanchett squaring off against Regina King, it feels so weird to have Phyllis Shafley going against like Sister, Sister Knight. Knight. <laughs> like it just, it, like it, I, n- n- with with all due respect to Kate Blanchett, like there's a right answer there. So I I feel I mean, but you know that's that's the point of of that performance and that show is it's taking this yeah. very unlikable character and and f- and trying to flesh it out. Um Maybe, I, I, really, I wonder how voters will take it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Maybe Kate Blanchett actually kicked off the Karen craze with that performance.
0: <laughs> wow, Phyllis Schlafly really did. Uh, she saw the future come in with that one. <laughs>
3: Yeah. <sighs> I want to say one one thing quickly, which is that um, in comedy guest performance, um, Eddie Murphy might win an award, and I think that's cool. Um, oh, for SNL! For SNL, I think that would that's be really great. exciting. Um, just and that I was think such a be, great episode
0: of SNL. It was
3: such a great episode of SNL, um, and you know he's he's up against like other SNL hosts and Luke Kirby for the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and whatever. Um, oh, Fred Willard is also nominated um, in that category. RIP. Um, yeah. But it would be it would just be. So um, exciting to see him win uh, for coming back to SNL.
2: It wouldn't make up for the Oscar snub, but it would be helpful. (laughs) It would be great. Yeah. It would be.
0: (laughs) That Eddie Murphy episode of SNL is definitely one of the things I think of like fondly from the before times. Like that was such a nice thing right before Christmas. (laughs) Yeah. Things (laughs) turn
2: on their head. I'm glad it didn't have to happen on Zoom.
0: Yeah. Aren't we all?
5: This year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to Butcher Box. Butcher Box is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. two pounds of ground beef and three pounds of bone in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com cadence that's butcherbox.com cadence
0: well we're getting to the end of our season of uh, emmy contender interviews because the emmy nominations are almost upon us but before that happens we have joanna's conversation with tandy newton uh hello joanna welcome back tell us about your conversation with tandy
6: newton Hello, Katie Rich. Um, Yeah, (laughs) Tandy Newton, uh, you know, anyone who's watching Westworld knows that if you stumble upon a Maeve episode, you are in good hands. Tandy Newton, big, big fan favorite on Westworld. And she's here to talk about, you know, some of the challenges and frustrations she found in shooting the latest season of Westworld and sort of her hopes for being able to, return to some of her season one, uh, you know, involvement in the central plot, uh, in future seasons, which would be my fondest hope too. Uh, so this is like, yeah, kind of a real interview with Tandy Newton about, about Westworld and Maeve and the future of the series, which apparently has three more seasons. So let's hear from Tandy Newton. <laughs> We are thrilled to have on the podcast the great Tandy Newton, who TV fans might know best right now for her work on Westworld as Maeve Millay. Tandy, I want to start by asking you, I, um, my understanding of the Westworld process is that it's quite collaborative, um, that the show like to hear from the actors, their, their feedback on, on the performances, on the roles, on the story. Has that been your experience with this
7: particular show? They certainly like to have feedback from previous seasons, which I imagine goes towards how we continue. I think really, because we're all part of this network, and because you know, there are a few of us that are consistently part of it, I feel like part of what I am really concerned about is just the that everyone feels good when when we're working, whether you know, crew cast everybody. So it's less about, what you end up seeing on screen, it's just more about the welfare of, of everybody. And I feel really, really grateful how much they take our input in that respect seriously. You know, it's really important to them that that everyone is is respectful to one another and, and that we have as much as we can. We have, you know, uh, gender equality, you know, everywhere that we can in every department. I mean, we don't manage to completely, although with directors, we have more women than men this year. So it's that, it's that side of things um, that I feel completely able to weigh in. My enthusiasm was, I mean, after season one, it was extraordinary to play such a, well, to, to chart the empowerment of this robot. For me, it was a metaphor for the dispossessed in the world. And, you know, there's no argument that, you know, life is undervalued. And some people just have a higher price on on, on them than others uh, in terms of how people are treated in the world. We're seeing it now with the with the coronavirus. And uh, I really, really, I felt so proud to be part of a show that was that was seeing this 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 brown woman who happened to be brown, but of course that's a big deal, you know, through her awareness and ability to make judgments you know make make independent judgments she became unstoppable that was amazing so I don't know whether that established Maeve but then you know Maeve has really now that once she was established in season one she kind of just sort of carries on in that spirit it's like the first season was all about the development developing her character and then the second and third seasons have been you know her just sort of being part of a world that she doesn't want to be in basically.
6: I know at the end of season two, you felt that your character Maeve had accomplished what she was trying to accomplish, um, freedom for some other people, saving her daughter, all this sort of stuff. (laughs) And then she starts the third season kind of purposeless she's struggling to sort of give a shit about what's happening in the world around her and it it, uh, takes a while in this you know latest season of Westworld for Maeve to really get engaged in what's going on how do you given that you know so much of a performer's um, work is driven by sort of what's my motivation what's my motivation how do you navigate a character who for so long in this season doesn't
7: have that I don't know. There's, it's been strangely frustrating, but all with a purpose, because at the, point, at the point when Maeve is presented with a choice, she has to make it. And that, that, obviously that doesn't happen until the end of season three. So in a way, Maeve's agency starts again in episode eight of season three. Yeah. And I've, so I've spent basically pretty much two and three floundering you know, having an extraordinary experience and also, you know, creating a path for the audience to better understand what, you know, what the hosts have have been dealing with. You know, she's obviously been aware of the, the enormity of, you know, this whole Westworld um, franchise, you know, War World, Shogun World. Now there's Dragon World. You know, I want her to be part of the solution and not the problem. Of course, she's not a baddie. <laughs> And I I really love that about her. It had a huge influence on, certainly on my life. Yeah, but that's just a personal preference. Whatever, Whatever, wherever they take this, I really trust these guys. I think they're master storytellers and I love being around them. I love, I love the, I really love the work environment that they, they create. It's bloody hard work and can be frustrating, but Everybody is putting more than they think they could ever manage into this show.
6: So Maeve gets used by Ciroc and is at odds with Dolores. And there's so much, you know, conflict. She's so on on the wrong path this season without knowing it. What path do you want her on um, for season four?
7: No wonder Maeve just like, give me a sherry and get me the fuck out of here, man. You're just making up shit as you go along. (laughs) You know? Maeve is done. uh. I mean, I think, I think season four might be like, it's like the season where the whole show has to convince Maeve that it's worth, you know, sticking around for, you know what I mean? I feel like that would be a good guide for the next season. Make, make Maeve give a shit.
6: I'm fascinated by how Westworld started out as this sort of, like, big, sexy, uh, action-friendly sci-fi show on HBO became so much in its second and third seasons about motherhood and parenthood and family, and um, I'm wondering what you think the genesis of those particular themes are.
7: Because I think it's trying to show us the cyclical nature of our negative behavior if we don't deal with trauma, you know? Yeah. Or if we go to sleep on the job, which is basically what we're doing, you know, and and, and just not having a conscience, not, not taking responsibility, not recognizing our agency and the possibilities for freedom and what we could be doing with that. It's like we've all gone to sleep and it's just waking us up, waking us up, you know, forcing us to consider these different interactions with people that we've had in our lives, and, and, and how they become drives, definitely. Um, fascinating, yeah. I mean, also, you know, there's Dolores, who is, who, who is childless in the show, a woman who is childless, but the relationships that she has with herself, basically, that is fascinating to me, just on its own. It's like she's, she's having to reconcile aspects of herself through copies of herself you know, and that's so much of, of I guess, what we do as, as an adult, you know, you look back at different stages of your life and, you know, you kind of try and reason with different aspects of yourself, certainly in a therapy situation, let's face it, you know, those who've been, had the benefit of therapy, very often you are talking to your child or, to, you know, your inner child and all of this. I think, yeah, that that whole kind of decoding consciousness and and just, recognizing how much what we do is influenced by those outside of us, and you know, um, yeah obviously the whole notion of free will isn't free. Um, but yeah, to do I think specifically around relationships, the, the the themes are very much around responsibility and 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 caretaking. yeah, I mean, I, it's it's very it's there's always so much to talk about with the West world. I think it's especially fascinating to
6: watch this story of a dystopian a real world society uh, on in Westworld season 3 in 2020 while we're going through what feels like dystopian times and i know that you could not have predicted uh the coronavirus when you were making season three but i also know that the pandemic itself impacted your post-production i saw a video of you doing some adr work in your car Uh, so i was just wondering if you could talk about some other ways in which you know the coronavirus hitting uh, impacted westworld season three
7: yeah i mean thankfully we were done by the time both America and the, and Europe started to really be affected by the coronavirus. Um, and, and it was only the post-production. And those guys over there, the team that were taking care of all the visual effects and sound and everything, just I'm amazed that they managed to, to complete the work. I mean, really, it's astonishing. I posted my little thing online, really just <laughs> out of just trying to, honor the people on the other end you know i was literally like i'm talking to you in the states i was on satellite with them Them, you know trying to record this this clean soundtrack and i'm sitting in my car in the garage um but we did it you know it's it's um it it was real commitment that got everyone there and how it affects the next season i mean every day my husband and i are like are we ever gonna shoot again how is this going to be possible? How are you going to ensure people? how are you gonna you know you're asking people to fly around the world? Um, that's really that could be very it could be dangerous. but I guess you know the the guidelines that are in place, you know, hopefully are going to be making sure that we are safe, all of us. Um I can't wait personally. the idea that we when i when I found out that we had, that he got picked up for another season it was more than just westworld got picked up for another season it's like oh my god the world is potentially going to be okay enough for, for us to do this again like let's let's hope
6: Right, so when news broke that there was uh, going to be a fourth season of Westworld, there was also an implication that there might be a fifth and sixth as well. And I'm just wondering, for you as a performer, does it impact your approach to know or think about the idea that your character might have several seasons of growth or change or movement to go through before it all ends?
7: Well, honestly, I look at my little boy, he's six, and he was six months old when we started shooting this show. And then I look at myself in the mirror, this exhausted woman, and I think, bloody hell, man, you got to get your shit together, because if you have to play Maeve again, who hasn't aged, by the way. <laughs> so what, you know, I don't have anything else to think about when it comes to the show, because we don't have scripts, but I don't know what's going on. I just think about the fact that I've got to somehow, you know, freeze my cells in order to... You know, play this woman again. It's, it motivates me to to try and stay healthy.
6: Mave is such an incredibly physically demanding role. Increasingly, like all the all the fighting you had to do this season looked really tough.
7: Oh my god! Uh, the fight that we did out in in the kind of military uh, compound, um, we rehearsed it for days. It was four days shooting. Because um, it had lots of pieces to it, you know. Maeve gets off that funny helicoptery thing, and you've got all the stuff with Dolores and Caleb and all that. So the actual fight, we actually fought solidly for two days, and then there's all the fighting in the in the in the kitchen cantini thing as well. So you know, we were fighting three days, and what really, oh my god, what made it so difficult was. I had real costume envy that day of of Evan because she had a little tank top on and I had this full like wetsuit and it was it was like the upper 30 degrees heat out there. It was brutal. It's, you know, it's California, late summer, it was so hot, man. And I had this freaking wetsuit thing on. And also I had, you know, padding underneath it for my elbows and my back. And so I was really, really padded up and hot as hell. And that was the most difficult thing, was doing all that stuff while absolutely boiling. And, you know, I don't want to look like a big sweaty mass of crap, especially when Evan's like looking all smooth and eel-like. So that was fun. It was really, it was really, it was really, really challenging. But, you know, the fight's meant to be, brutal and difficult and 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 so heartbreaking for both of them it's just well maybe not for Dolores but for Maeve it's it's just none of this needs to happen you know well I'm getting really into it now <laughs> yeah but yeah that outfit was it looked cool but whoa, it was so hot and because each one was was made you know bespoke for me we didn't have like loads so it, it was just a bit It's like every time I put it on, it's like whoop, yeah, okay. I smell myself from the last two weeks. It was, uh, it's definitely one for eBay that costume because it's basically got all all my DNA is just like in that costume. I'm sure the costume could walk by itself. Let's just say that.
6: So you know the the stakes in Westworld always feel really high. Uh, You know it's life or death for robots for humans, but in a show where you know. Printing bodies and and moving consciousness around swapping bodies happens all the time, Uh, there's always an opportunity for a favorite to return when you thought that they were gone for good. So, uh, you know, that impermanence uh, or or, you know, that that relationship with death uh, and how impermanent it is in the world of Westworld, how do you then deliver these moments of loss for Maeve when we, the audience, know this might not be the last time we see you know, Lee Sizemore or Hector or something like that
7: one thing that you realize is that with the with the robots in Westworld they never knew they were dying again and again because they would be just wiped and then they go back into the park and do the same thing all over again getting killed in a different way or whatever um, obviously for Maeve she becomes conscious of the fact that she's dying often so I think that, that she sees that there's a utility in, in death for her, obviously. But I, I just, pl- you got to play it for real each time. I mean, I think also Maeve is very sympathetic. She's compassionate. So when she sees hosts die, she feels for them every time. So it, it doesn't make death less meaningful. I don't know, we'll have to see. I mean, if. if Simon coming back was really huge. And it was a really good um, Simon Corkman, who plays uh, Lee Sizemore. That was was a really good sort of twist, because we thought he was a dead human, and then we assume he was a live human. And then when you find out that actually he's a simulation, it's just really cool. Yes, characters do come back, but they've always been coming back in a really interesting way. It's not like, oh, God, Westworld. It's It's not lazy. It's not like, oh, yeah, Westworld. Westworld can just bring people back, so they just do it willy-nilly. It's not like... Do you remember... Um, I'll never forget this. Uh, Dallas, when Bobby Ewing came back, and it was... It, like the, the, I don't know how many seasons they decided to make a dream just to get Bobby back. I don't feel like that's ever going to be anything that Westworld will do, with all due respect to bloody Dallas, because that was gold for me. No matter how popular a character is, and I think this is something that other shows have done well, I mean, there is a real value to being the kind of show that is confident enough to say goodbye to a character and never to see them again no matter how much your audience kicks and screams and wants to see them you know but I I I can't imagine how Maeve could ever die I just I I just don't I can't see it happening like how on earth could you ever believe it you know I don't know I don't know if that's like some fantastic insurance that I'll always be part of the show
6: I mean, the same could be said probably for Evan Rachel Wood's character for Dolores. And, you know, uh, ostensibly at the end of season three, she dies, she gets wiped. It seems like this big sacrificial moment. Um, Are we, the audience, meant to take that as as a finite ending for her character? Is this this actually death come to Westworld?
7: It certainly seems to be. I haven't had that confirmed. But just me as an audience um, and the way it felt at the time and Serac, who... You know, is the capability of of his setup is very strong. So if he wipes her memories, and he has no interest in in any of the the hosts and Delos, you know, he he just wants the intellectual property. All those numbers add up to Dolores as we know her being gone. But of course, she has populated the world with versions of herself. So you know, maybe there's a version that's in a little cupboard somewhere that's still the old Dolores. Um, But I I don't know where that could possibly come from. Um, And whatever happens is going to be done in a way which is really surprising and really cool. I mean, you know, it's like, I do understand why people want to know stuff. But I feel like it gets to a point where you just throw your arms up and just accept entertainment. It's like, okay, this isn't a maths problem. This isn't for me to solve. This is for me to just sit back and be taken on a journey. You know, it's like trying to stop a roller coaster. It's like trying to put brakes on a roller coaster. It's like, are you going to put all your effort into trying to put brakes on this roller coaster? Or, you know, it's like with anything. It's less painful if you just surrender. That's how I feel about it. Maybe it's just laziness. Also, I just, I really admire, I like like people showing me how dope they can be. You know, I love Westworld. You know, all the showrunners just... I just get to sit back and freaking, Well, actually, that's not true. I'm in it, but you know what I mean. Um, certainly, in the scenes that I'm not in, I, I'm. I, I even feel like I don't know what's happening because it's just such a spectacle and it's so beautifully made. And I wasn't there to see it. That for a minute there, I, I forget that I've even read the scripts. You know, I don't want to know. I don't want. I don't want the mystery and the and the, the surprises to be taken away. God no. Um, but, you know, like my husband and my daughter both read the last page of a novel before they start. So I get it.
8: <laughs> Hi there, I'm Johanna Desta. I'm a staff writer for Vanity Fair. This week I had the pleasure of interviewing Janelle Monet. We talked about her role in the second season of Amazon's Homecoming, as well as the current political moment, because how could we not? <laughs> um, plus what it was like having Julia Roberts come to set to watch her act. Uh, I actually previously interviewed her for the June cover story, so it was a treat to catch up with her again a few months later. So enjoy. All right. So Janelle Monet, how are you?
1: You know, today has been pretty interesting and on the edge of your seat. Interesting. Uh, no, I wish. I. <laughs> I, I hey, I'm, I'm, I still feel like I'm in an alternate universe. Mm-hmm.
8: I feel that I was interviewing a director earlier today who said she was pandemic fine. And I felt that on like a spiritual molecular level, it's just all the things are happening, but me individually, I'm okay. I'm dealing.
1: Oh, um, I love that. <laughs> pandemic fine. Pandemic fine. That, that, that's a great way.
8: Yeah, shout out to Don Porter who said that. Um, and yeah, so I have obviously a million questions about homecoming, and but this is kind of a tangent. I just wanted to note for our listeners that you posted a really lovely Pride performance of Cold War on Instagram. And for those who haven't seen it, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about it and what inspired that.
1: Well, I was supposed to perform uh, in New York City for Pride. It was going to be my first Pride performance, and unfortunately, you know, due to COVID-19, um, you know, it got canceled, and it got canceled for in-person, uh, you know, an a in-person concert, but we still wanted to celebrate Pride, uh, and we did it virtually. So when it was time to pick a song, they asked me to, you know, do a song, and when it was time to pick it, I was looking at all of my work, and I have so many songs that are relevant to the times. You know, sometimes you you want your songs to be timeless, and in this case, I just wish that 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 song "Cold War" and, and a lot of my catalog was not, you know, relevant because some of the things that we're talking about, you know, when we're talking about oppression, like I, I just don't want us to be in that world, and here we are still dealing with systemic racism, still dealing with white supremacy, still dealing with violence and and murder on black bodies. Um, And so Cold War was uh, a song that I had written, you know, on my first album that, that, that dealt with fighting against those systems. And I thought it was the most appropriate, you know, considering that we are protesting and marching and, and speaking out uh, for our trans uh, family and our, you know, trans brothers and sisters who uh, disproportionately, uh, who are disproportionately affected by by violence and by by you know so many things and you know we're also protesting for Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade and Elijah McClain and George Floyd and Sandra Bland and so many of our people so I thought that this would be a song that I I would hope that would um keep us inspired and keep us fighting through through the fatigue because we are tired you know but we have fight in us.
8: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think it's also a testament to your artistry that you have a song and also several songs that meet this moment that could be appropriate for this moment, even though it's unfortunate that we are dealing with, you know, this level of brutality again and again. Uh, And you also had this, I guess, a short film or a montage that's playing in the backdrop. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and and who made that and where that came from?
1: Well, I I have a projector and I have, you know, a room that I do a lot of art installation and projects and um, and I, I work with an editor by the name of Deji and Deji worked on my dirty computer project and a lot of my videos and I just reached out to him and I said, "Hey, can you pull together some footage that that shows um, you know the LGBTQIA plus community celebrating mm-hmm. uh, that shows us happy that also shows you know not just our joy but our pain so people can understand." Um, What it means to fight, uh, you know, fight to have joy in the middle of uh, a war, you know, Um, and pull together us marching in the streets and and pull together where we are right now in the country. So, you know, as an artist, which I feel is my responsibility in in the words of Nina Simone, but to reflect the times, find me some footage that reflects the times. Mm.
8: Yeah, and that footage absolutely does. Um, And I think that, you know, it's also a testament to the fact that people want to turn to art. They want to have joyful moments that they can look at to reflect on in this time when there's so much chaos. So... uh, that's something that people can check out on your Instagram. Um, and then they can also check out Homecoming, which is a show that is finally out now. It's been a while since we talked for the June cover story, uh, which features you and it's out on newsstands now. But uh, what have the reactions been like for you to see people finally get to watch the show?
1: Wow. So yeah, people have been really respectful of the uh, ending. You know, nobody has really given away the ending. Um, I've just read comments you know, around how intense things are and, and some of the things that I love about the show people are pointing out, like from the score, from the cinematography um, to the performances. you know I, I, I must say I'm pretty hard on myself um, because I'm always trying to achieve a new level of uh, of, of artistry and, and and tapping in you know to the deepest well of what it means to be an actor. Uh, And pulling, you know, pulling, pulling more of myself on the screen or even reducing Mm -hmm. (laughs) myself and allowing the character to shine. But I will say I'm a fan, you know, of this show. And I just think that the way it was edited, which is so important, you know, the way that we were able to work together as performers and scene partners and just give each other what we needed. Uh, is quite remarkable. And I'm just so proud of how it turned out. And I'm so happy that, you know, a lot of folks are talking about it and they love season one. And the fact that I'm seeing a lot of people say, you know, I love season two, you know, uh, I love season two, like you guys (laughs) did not, did not (laughs) fall off. So that's really all you want. You know, you want to, you want to make sure that uh, you're bringing more to the table and you're, you're, you're also, uh, you know, not going backwards
8: hmm Yeah. I mean, what was it about the show in its first season that made you want to sign on for that second season?
1: What it had to say, you know, this show talks about power and, and how people abuse power. And I think that it's a character study on so many, so many folks. You know, my character in particular, who is um, fighting against the abuse of power and also in the middle of that trying to uncover her identity because she loses her memory. And you go on this journey with her, this psychological edge of your seat <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. journey as she uncovers her truth. And every time she thinks she uncovers the truth, uh, here's another lie she has to uncover. And I think that corporations and those in the position of power have a responsibility to tell people the truth, to not hide information, uh, to, to, to be honest and, and to be ethical and, you know, to take care of, of those who have taken care of this country. And I think that it has a lot to say about that. It also has a lot to say about when women get in the position of power, uh, how we can sometimes be a part of or be on the team of the abusers of power. We can join the patriarchy and we can adapt behaviors that are toxic To attain that power. You know, these are all rules that were made up by by men, but it it causes us to ask ourselves, are we any better if we're playing the same game and playing uh, the same way that that the men that we seek to hold accountable? um, Are we any better than them? You know, when Mm -hmm. we when we adapt their behavior.
8: Yeah, absolutely, and I feel like the show does tackle the show has a lot of layers and some layers I want to get into, but it is spoilery for folks who haven't seen it yet. So I guess I would just recommend watching season two of Homecoming. But uh, one thing I do want to touch on too, uh, you joined this project. Uh, Julia Roberts was the star of season one. She remained a producer for season two, uh, and obviously gave her blessing for you to take over the show and lead the show. I'm just curious, do you remember, like, what was it like meeting her for the first time?
1: Um, Julia Roberts, wow. She's, you know, she's such an icon. And when she surprised us and popped up on set, I was nervous, you know, scared. <laughs> Obviously, she's executive producing and she had played, you know, season one. And, and knowing that she had a hand in, in making sure that I had the lead role, this season was already an honor. But I still felt that pressure, right? So when she showed up on set, um, we did a scene Stefan and I were doing a scene, and, and after we, we, you know, the director Kyle said cut, we heard a loud scream, like, ow! We were like, <laughs> who is that? And, and one of the guys from production leaned in and said, you know, that's Julia Roberts. She loved you guys' take. And I was like, oh my God, like, wow. That is like the biggest compliment, the biggest honor. And I just started to relax after, af- after that. Um, so it was just, it was a pleasure, you know, to have her pass me uh, the baton. Yeah, that's
8: so funny that it kind of sounds like she like quietly came to set because she didn't want to distract. I remember when I spoke to her for the for the piece for the June story, one of the things that she did say was she tried to make it a point not to hang around the set too often because she wanted you to have space and freedom. And she also didn't want to feel like the high school senior who keeps coming back to the high school like, hey, guys,
7: remember (laughs) me?
1: (laughs) That's really funny. That's so kind of her. She can come back any day. <laughs> she could have come. She could have come back a lot of shows. She was just so down to earth, you know, so sweet. Mm-hmm.
8: Yeah, it's um, it's amazing that she's like that, and she's Julia Roberts, and she doesn't have to be. So, we love that. But uh, one thing that I read that was really interesting that I I didn't know actually when I spoke to you the first time. You watched all of your takes back. Have you always been that kind of an actor? And if so, like, how does that not make you nervous to do that? I guess.
1: I'm very objective uh, with 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 my work. You know, I'm always again trying to pull from the deepest well and, and challenge myself in new ways, and making sure I'm as authentic as possible to the character that I'm playing. And I'm a visual learner. You know, some people can learn verbally; you can tell them, and they'll make the adjustments. I have to see myself in order to correct myself. And Kyle, which you know, who I love, he loved working in that way with me. He loved. You know, being able to say, hey, Janelle, just come over to the screen, you know, take a look at this. And as he was verbally talking, everything he was saying made sense when it was coupled with me watching the take. And I think it just has to do with being a performer, always Mm. having to hit your mark, watching myself do talent showcases and want to improve. You know, the next time I did a talent show to my live performances when I'm on tour, I watch them every night. So I can go back and I can make make those changes uh, for a better performance. I'm listening to the band members. I'm listening and watching how we're moving and 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 what's off on the lighting like i that I pay that you know that that close attention uh, to detail and a lot of people are like, "You should direct <laughs> and, I, and i and I think that I should um, but when you have a great director like Kyle Patrick Alvarez, who you know respects your process. And, um, you know, allows time for that to happen. It just makes me comfortable. It makes me feel like I can trust him. And, you know, I can also be comfortable, uh, in, in the process that I have, because I think ultimately you want the best work and, and, and that's how I I get most times the, the best work for myself.
5: Mm,
8: Yeah, it's so funny that you say that, because I had been reading this interview that Kyle did, where he said that, you know, not only were you great to work with because of your acting talent, but because you're an experienced dancer and you're adept at choreography. And that is really, really helpful for a show that is this technical. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that, like the importance between the connection between like acting and choreography and if that rings true for you.
1: Yeah, hitting your mark is is has always been you know, something that we say on stage and as we're dancing or learning movements, um, staying in the spotlight and doing things. And there were some moments in homecoming, there's this one shot or this one shot where I'm, I don't want to give too much away, but just know they're like this long shot and, and, and I'm, I, you know, it's a one shot for, for a few minutes and it requires me hitting my certain marks and ducking down and looking up and, you know, making sure that I'm moving with the camera at the same time. And if the camera's supposed to land here, I need to be on this mark or the whole scene is going to be messed up. And uh, if I hadn't had that experience in choreography and timing and all of that, uh, I don't, you know, I think it would have been, it would have taken some time because I showed up the day of, we never really rehearsed it the day before. Oh, wow.
8: I think, one thing I was curious about, we we spoke about this last time and I say last time, which was many, many months ago at this point. Um, but if you're okay to discuss this, one thing I truly found unbelievable is as you were shooting this show uh, behind the scenes, you were also dealing with, you know, the after effects of mercury poisoning while literally having to work every single day. How did you manage those two things?
1: Yeah, last year was a tough time. I, I, got, I, I got told by my doctor The day I came in to do like camera tests for hair and makeup, and uh, on the set of Homecoming, and here I am about to start—you know—my first role, lead role on on TV, and I'm already nervous. Already, you know, like, do I know my lines and over preparing and freaking out behind the scenes, and 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 and, and the reason why I was doing all that was was a result of of having mercury poisoning. Um, It 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 messes with your nervous system and. You know, I felt like I wasn't myself for a while, but to get that confirmation um, was, uh, you know, was 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 eye opening and, and, and also helpful because at least I can say, OK, here's one of the reasons that I'm feeling this way. How do we help it? And so I had to start taking, um, you know, chelation therapy and kind of cleansing myself from the heavy metals and I had to use it. You know, I had to use the moments of being disoriented or using the moments of uh, high anxiety or shyness or, um, you know, all of the symptoms. I had to use that for my character. (laughs) And oddly, I, I think it worked. (laughs)
8: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, I I just commend you for dealing with all that and then still turning in like a really great performance in this really difficult, demanding show. Um, It's such a treat to watch. But uh, thank you for revisiting that and and talking about that with me. Switching gears almost entirely, I do want to talk about your most frequent scene partner, uh, Hong Chao, who plays Audrey. Uh, Can you talk to me a little bit about what it was like working with her?
1: Hong is is one of the best actors I've worked with Um, she's so Nuanced and prepared and I loved her first season as Audrey And so I was super excited that we were going to be working uh, together and I've watched all of the movies She's been in and TV shows Watchmen like she killed that and I was like, yes, I get to work with her Um, She's super sweet, you know uh, very giving as a scene partner she made me feel comfortable because, you know, I'm coming into a built family and you want them to like you and love you and, you know, all those things. And it was just great to know that she respected me as well and and was excited to take this journey with me. Uh, but I think that, you know, we find Audrey in the middle of a lot of mess this season and, you know, stepping into her power and 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 still, still having bigger obstacles to get through. So it was great, like scheming with her and I'm not going to give too much away, but, uh, plotting with Audrey, you know, these two powerful women coming together to take down the powers that be. Um, I think that's awesome.
8: And something, um, I wanted to talk about briefly as well is you know, this is the first, your character, this is the first time you're playing an out queer character on screen, I think in general. Um, when did you realize that that was going to be like a first for you?
1: I mean, it was a part of the, um, the the scripts mm. so when I read it that's what I um knew that my character was going to be and I was like yes you know being a black queer woman uh leading tv in real life as well as on screen to me was 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 just is an honor uh and and I was excited that you know there was also an Asian woman uh, who who was also queer uh showing up on screen and just in general, like I love how you know how colorful the cast is. Uh, I think that, that that was also super appealing to me uh as I signed off on the project
8: mm-hmm. yeah, no, it certainly adds to the world of the show and it that was present in the first season too, but I love that the universe just expands in a more inclusive way in the second season.
1: And it makes sense, you know, I I can always tell when things like that doesn't make sense. They're just trying to do that, which I applaud the effort, but it doesn't, you know, sometimes it feels forced and you're not writing for the human. And that's what I love, too. Like my specifically as it pertains to race, you know, this script, uh, this season didn't specify my character was black. Obviously, I'm black and I'm proud of it. But I will say having to play into stereotypes of what folk writers think Black people look like and sound like uh, is uninspiring. You know, I love when writers just write for the human. You know, I'm going to bring that to it. I'm going to bring whatever I feel Blackness should, should be to that. Um, but write me as, as a complicated, complex human being. You know, let me be seen in that light. So uh,
8: one thing I wanted to end it on is, you know, looking ahead into a post-pandemic world where we can hopefully, you know, start resuming film and TV production as normal. Uh, I know that you said you're interested in directing. You also have a deal to develop your own film and TV projects. I'm just curious, artistically, like, what is next for you? What do you want to pursue in the post-pandemic world?
1: Well, as we all know, you know, nobody has control (laughs) of what's next. Uh, I don't think anybody could have predicted that we were going to be in the middle of a pandemic right now and and how it's held up so many productions. And, you know, we've also lost a lot of lives. And I think what's next for me is is really fighting against uh, the abuse of power and trying to be a better citizen um, and someone who promotes as much as possible the fight that we have to have against white supremacy, systemic racism. Uh, the abuse of power in the police force and all the way up into the White House. So that's my main goal in how to figure out how to tell stories that fight against that and that can turn a mirror to those who don't get it, who don't get it yet and who haven't joined the fight. I also have a um, responsibility in my in my heart um, to Black women and to portray us in so many different lights because we are so much and there's so much brilliance in our work and in and in our stories and I hope to as a producer and as an actor uh, bring those stories to the forefront so that the next generation of actors uh, will be written as human beings and and be allowed to decide how they want to portray their 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 blackness versus somebody telling them what blackness is.
8: That is a beautiful place to end this conversation. Janelle Monet. thank
0: you so much for speaking
8: with me today.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for watching. Take care.
0: That does it for this week's show. As we said, uh, we'll be here to chronicle the Emmy nominations when they're announced at the end of July. Uh, in the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com uh, and on Twitter at LittleGoldMen, where we love hearing from you. And you can find us on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Mike.
2: Mike underscore Hogan.
0: And Sonia. Sonia Soraya. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best alternate title for this podcast goes to Sonia Soraya. With all due respect to Kate Blanchett.